Okay, Hare Krishna. My name is Vrinda Kriya Dibidasi. Um, it means the servant of one who is dear to Vrinda, or the servant of Vrinda who is dear. Vrinda is like a saint in our movement. So I'm just going to say a quick prayer. Oh my It's a prayer that we say before we speak, and it means, I was born in the darkest of ignorance, and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torchlight of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Because the idea is that we, we need a teacher for everything we learn. You know, even in material things, we need a teacher. You don't learn math just by reading a book. And if you learned medicine just by reading a book, that would be scary. I wouldn't want to see you as a doctor. Um, so for spiritual life, it's the same. Spiritual life is much more important even than material life. And so we need a teacher for that as well. So we say that prayer before we speak. So hopefully I can say something useful by the mercy of my spiritual master. So um, the talk is called Open Secrets. And um, have you guys ever had this experience where, so raise your hand if you've been in Krishna consciousness for some time, like a year or more. <laughs> okay, great, almost everyone. Have you had this experience where you, um, you're associating with like a really advanced devotee or um, you, you kind of make a connection and you're like, oh, that's what the Bhagavad Gita was talking about. I get it now. Have you guys ever kind of like had an experience like that? Okay. So I had an experience like that recently at a retreat. Um, it's called Sadhu Sangha, and it's like a big festival for Hare Krishnas. Um, and Sadhu means like a sage, and Sangha means association. And Sadhu Sangha is where we go to get the association and the company of souls who are very advanced in this process. And it's really powerful because it's like um, if you're riding a skateboard and you're holding on to a car that's going 60 miles an hour, that's what Sadhu Sangha is like. On our own, we're not going really fast in spiritual life. Sometimes we kind of are feeling a bit sluggish and we're going along pretty slowly. But when we associate Sangha with saintly people, Sadhus, then we make rapid advancement. And so I went to Sadhu Sangha and I was like, whoa, I've been in Krishna consciousness for 10 years, but I actually feel like I've been practicing Krishna consciousness for like a month, less than a month, because <laughs> I had some realizations and I kind of clicked. So I'm just here to share what I learned with you all. You might already know it, so forgive me if I say things you already know. Um, so I want to talk about three open secrets, and they are selflessness, um, our mood or our attitude in spiritual life, and um, how to serve the servants. And then I'm going to speak just a little about Bhakti Jyotha Swami. Um, I could actually go on and on and on about Bhakti Jyotha Swami. I've never met him in this life, but I love his books so, so much. I feel like I have a connection with him through his books. And so I'll talk a little bit about him because it's his disappearance day. That's the day that he left this world. And we celebrate that day and we celebrate the day that they appeared in the world, because they're very special people. So, um, okay, so the first one is selflessness. And I had this um, moment, this is a picture of the retreat, Sadhusanga. There's a little less than 2,000 Hare Krishnas who go to North Carolina on Memorial Day weekend. And, um, and there's a stage you can see, and the people on the stage are 
really special people. They're not ordinary people. Actually, everyone who goes is, is really special. But the people on the stage especially have um, basically all completely given everything up to not only pursue spiritual life, but to share it with everyone they come in contact with. And I had a moment when I was at the retreat where I was looking at um, His Holiness Giri Swami. He's there on the stage um, behind that Vyasasanda chair, the big chair. And then Satyanandana Swami, he's standing up with the microphone. Um, Indrajuna Swami, you can see him towards the back. Um, Madhava Prabhu, he's playing the harmonium. You guys know what harmonium is because it's this instrument that we used right here just now. And Chaturatma Prabhu, he's on the right, sitting down on the stage. So I was just um, observing all these people and I was thinking about how they had completely given everything up and stopped pursuing their own happiness in this life. And they decided at a point in their lives that they were just going to work to make their spiritual master pleased and happy and to make God happy and to make everyone happy by telling them about God because that's how we can be happy. And I realized that in spite of the fact that they weren't trying for their own happiness, they're probably the happiest people in that place out of all of the 2,000 people there. And I made that connection. Oh, we actually don't have to try to be happy. Um, we can just try to make other people happy and then naturally we'll become happy. And just to give you an idea, because sometimes we can see these people and we, we just think of them in terms of what we know of them. But I want to show you some pictures of them when they were younger. So on the very left of that picture, that's Giriraj Swami. And in the front and center is Srila Prabhupada, and he's the founder of our Hare Krishna Society. Um, he came from India with nothing and established this movement. He brought knowledge from India that nobody knew about practically in America, and he taught us about this. And it's because of him that we're able to dance and sing so happily here and, um, and feel so fulfilled and learn about this. And His Holiness Girash Swami, he's on the left. He um, was a very young man when he met Srila Prabhupada, and he gave everything up to just serve him. And he was actually offered one million dollars by his father to leave um, Krishna consciousness and come back home. Because you might have had this experience when you joined the Hare Krishnas, people are like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Why? It's so random. It's, it's kind of a fringe thing in the United States. It's funny, when you go to India, it's the most normal thing. Everybody you know, knows what Hare Krishna means. But here in the United States, it's kind of random. So he was offered a million dollars by his father to, um, to come back home and be normal. And he, um, he didn't accept the offer, and uh, he stayed with Srila Prabhupada. He actually lived in a place called Juhu. It's a little town in Mumbai, um, in uh, abject poverty, because he had the order from Srila Prabhupada, you should establish a temple here. And so he did that, and he slept on the ground um, with rats. We see him now, If you, you guys will see him because he comes to Dallas a lot, and we just think that, he, you know, what a nice gentleman, and he gives really good classes, but he gave up everything um, to, to preach, and so it's good to know like what these people have done, what they've accomplished for us. Um, that is a picture of Srila Prabhupada again in the front, and then behind him is Indrajima Swami when he was a young man as well. They all joined when they were very young, and they just 
they gave up their jobs and their homes and their families just to preach and serve. That's Sajinanda Swami there when he was younger. And there's Chaturatma Das on the right, goes through the Prabhupada. And then um, there's a big, the word kirtaniya means someone who sings kirtan and leads kirtan. And so um, there's Madhava Prabhu, he's a big kirtaniya with Ayindra Prabhu, who's also like a really important person in our movement. And um, Ayindra, and uh, Madhava Prabhu actually, um, I heard this story when he was a teenager, he was kind of a little rebellious. And his dad was like, you're going to Vrindavan. So he just sent him to Vrindavan. And then when Madhava Prabhu went to Vrindavan, he became friends with Ayindra Prabhu, um, and he absolutely fell in love with Kirtan, and now all he does is travel and do Kirtan. And his dad was a little bit like, okay, I sent you to Vrindavan, but like, you couldn't be, you know, like, <laughs> be a little bit normal in society now, but Madhava Prabhu was like, no, I'm just going to travel and do Kirtan, so I thought that was really cool. Um, so just a little bit more about Srila Prabhupada, when he was in India um, in his 60s, he actually before that he met his spiritual master and his spiritual master gave him this instruction that you should go to the english-speaking countries and preach because you know most people in india know who krishna is but nobody in america knew who krishna was so he told him you should go to america to preach so he wasn't able to fulfill that instruction right away but he was working on it and then in his 60s he um he fulfilled the order of his spiritual master so he left everything and um, and came to the West to preach with how many rupees did he have? Like 40 rupees, the equivalent of like what, six dollars, six, seven dollars? He came back to India with the same 40 rupees. So he had nothing practically when he came here. Imagine going to a foreign country with six dollars. <laughs> you can't, right? With no prospects, no idea. But he had the order of his spiritual master. And he had um, the conviction that if I just try to follow the order of my spiritual master, even if I fail, I'll be successful because I tried for something noble. And, um, and then, in just a few years, he had a whole society. So Krishna really provided. Um, there are a couple really cool quotes. Um, Srila Prabhupada said, first Krishna tested me by taking everything away. Then Krishna tested me by giving me everything. And I thought that was so profound because um, obviously Srila Prabhupada didn't need to be tested. He was a pure devotee from birth. But when we go through tests at first, sometimes um, it's because Krishna wants to see how serious we actually are about spiritual life. Spiritual life means loving God. We're trying to love God. And love, true love, is unconditional. But love can't really be unconditional unless it's tested. Right? Because you can say, oh, I love you unconditionally, but then the test comes, and you're like, oh, never mind, I can't do it. And yeah. so, um, so first, the tests may be like, it feels like you have everything ripped away from you. And then if you persevere, then Krishna sees, God sees, okay, this person's actually serious because they're showing unconditional love and unconditional um, determination and enthusiasm. But then maybe we advance a little bit and God will send us tests in the form of giving us facility because he wants to see, okay, is this person going to use that facility now to satisfy themselves or 
are they going to use it to further advance in spiritual life and help others advance in spiritual life? So it's really interesting to see it. The picture on the left, Srila Prabhupada with nothing. That's um, a temple called the Radha Damodar Temple in India. You can still see it today. The room is preserved. It's really cool. And um, with nothing, you know, in the very beginning. And then again on the right, Srila Prabhupada with everything and still um, as serious as ever in spiritual life. So. He really came here just to give, not to take anything, and it shows by the, the result. Um, and then Srila Prabhupada, he also had a motto, everything for Krishna, nothing for me. And um, it, it's again, it's one of those things that I've heard before, and I thought, hmm, ah, that's nice. But I didn't actually, like, what does that mean, everything for Krishna and nothing for me? Nothing for me. Sometimes we feel, or I'll say at least I feel like, okay, a lot for Krishna, but like a little for me. And I went along that way for a really long time thinking like, that's, you know, I'm, you know, very advanced. I'm such a great devotee. But then um, at Sadhu Sangha, I was thinking, no, everything for Krishna, nothing for me. So what does that look like in my life? What does that mean? And I reflected deeper on, um, on Srila Prabhupada and on our spiritual masters and what they have given up, um, even like pursuing their own happiness, they've given up. So I was trying to think of a good analogy for this because it's a little hard to understand. And so one analogy I came up with um, about like being happy and letting go is um, someone who's trying to swim. So when you're trying to swim, the first thing they teach you is not swimming actually, or, um, or like kicking your legs, or the strokes, what's the first thing they teach you? Float. How to float, and why? Because if you can't float, you can't swim. Because if you can't float, you can't swim, but what's the, why do people have to learn how to float, first of all? Because if you just do nothing, you automatically float. Why do you never surrender? surrender, yeah, that's the, that's the next question I was going to ask you ahead of the game. <laughs> So you don't drown, huh? Try to control. Yep, you try to go. control, and what happens when you try to control when you're swimming? You sink. Then you'll actually sink. So it's paradoxical. When you completely let go and trust, and they always have an instructor there who's like, okay, you're not going to drown, but just to make you feel better here, I'm holding you. So you actually, um, when you completely let go, then you can float. And so this was a connection I made when we completely stop trying to be happy, then Krishna takes care of us completely. So just think about that, like reflect on it, and it takes a long time because, you know, like I said, 10 years for me, and I'm still not really getting it, but I'm, it's starting to click that you actually don't have to try to be happy at all. And it's extremely contradictory to what modern society tells us. And it's even a tiny bit contradictory to what we hear in ISKCON because one of our mottos is chant Hare Krishna and be happy. So even we're trying a little bit to be happy in Krishna consciousness, which at least we're going to Krishna, and so that's always good. But um, even in spiritual life, the idea is that we just want to please Krishna and the devotees and then Krishna will completely take care of us. So that was one kind of reflection I had. And then once things like this click, you start to see it everywhere. Because then I went back and I was reading Bhagavad Gita and I was reading Srimad Bhagavatam and I was hearing classes and I'm like, there it is, there it is, there it is. We hear it all over. That's why the class is titled Open Secrets because 
it's not really a secret. It's open for everyone to take. But it's a secret in the sense that you have to know how to understand it. Like a key, all the keys are there, they're laid out. But we actually have to take the key and then we have to put it in the door and then we have to turn it. So that part is up to us. And so um, one other, so this is also in our scriptures and in all the lectures that you hear, is that this idea of letting go and not trying to become happy, it's compared to a person who's looking in a mirror. Okay, so when, so we are, like reflections of God. We're part and parcel of Krishna, and in the Bible it says we're made in the image and likeness of God. So we are the reflection, and in this analogy, Krishna, God, is this the real person, the substance. And when you um, try to make yourself happy, it's like you're trying to decorate the reflection in the mirror instead of the person. You know, you wake up in the morning and you want to get ready for work, that means you get the person ready for work, not the reflection in the mirror. You don't put the makeup on the mirror or brush the teeth on the mirror. And so it's um, just another like analogy to reinforce this point. Did that make any sense? Sorry, yeah, I don't know. Okay, thanks. So, um, so there's a story. I heard this recently about a man who had lost his keys and he was trying to find them. It was late at night. It was completely dark, except there was one street light. Hmm? Why not? Our okay. neighbor's next door, he lost his keys. Oh. <laughs> That's why they're hanging out the porch. <laughs> they might have gotten so, by now. <laughs> like, just now? They just now lost them? Like a half hour ago. Like today? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so in this story, the man loses his keys, and it's nighttime, and it's really dark, but there's a street lamp, and so he's searching, and a passerby comes, and he's, he thinks, oh, I'll help this boy out. So he goes, and he says, hey, you know, I want to help. Where were you when you last had your keys? Where were you when you realized they were missing? And the man says, oh, I was over there on the other side of the street, the side that was pitch black. And the passerby says, I don't understand. I'm trying to help you, so help me understand. You know you lost your keys over there. Why are you looking over here on this side of the road under this street lamp? And the man says, this is all I can see. So it's kind of like us. We're looking for happiness in an arena that we can see. And that's why a lot of people leave spiritual life, actually, because they come, it's such an internal process that you might see someone, and it looks maybe a little bland from the outside, and you're like, they're not really happy. We're looking for happiness in what we can see, but um, our true happiness lies in spiritual life, and it takes time to develop the purity to see what that happiness looks like. And so, like, in the analogy, the man is looking where he can see, but he actually needs to walk into the dark to find his keys, which takes a lot of faith. We also have to walk into the dark in the sense that we can't see that. But remember that prayer I said in the very beginning, that I was born in the darkest of ignorance, and who opened my eyes? Spiritual the, the spiritual master. So the teachers who have seen that happiness, they've seen that, they can light the way when we're walking into the dark. So, um, it, so it takes faith, but... Uh, it takes a little bit of faith, basically. We have to walk into the dark, but we have to take someone who can light the way for us. And, um, okay, so that's the first thing. Okay, so the second thing I wanted to talk about is... Um, oh, wait, I'm not done with this, sorry. There's one more thing I wanted to say. Um, 
So selflessness, there's a verse in the Sriman Bhagavatam in the first canto that talks about what devotional service should look like. This is really powerful, okay? So buckle up. Um, and this is, again, it's a verse you hear over and over and over again if you stay in Krishna consciousness for some time, but it didn't click for me until recently. It says that pure devotional service, another, uh, pure devotional service has to be two things. Unmotivated, so that means selfless, right? Unmotivated, completely, and uninterrupted, so constant. Uninterrupted means I'm not going to, um, to church on Sunday and then the rest of the week I do whatever nonsense, but every day and every moment I'm engaged in devotional service to the Lord. So it's a completely different mentality and it takes a little creativity to think how am I going to be God conscious in every single moment and it takes a lot of integration because um, sometimes you'll hear the question asked how do you balance material and spiritual life it's actually not a question of balance but a question of integration so in other words how am I going to bring God in every single moment and that's hard to do especially for those of us that work because work can feel so mundane but it says in the Bhagavatam first canto that devotional service has to be unmotivated and uninterrupted. Get this, this is the far out part. The second part of that verse is in order to what? Okay, so in Christianity, like I heard at least when I was growing up, that you have to do this, this, and that, or else you'll go to hell. Or you have to do this, this, and that, or else, you know, God will be angry. And there's like this fear of God. But in this verse, it says pure devotional service has to be unmotivated and uninterrupted in order to be completely satisfying to the self. So Krishna actually wants us to be happy, but he's saying you're not going to be happy by trying to be happy. You're going to be happy when your devotional service is unmotivated and uninterrupted. Then you'll be happy. So I thought that that was really cool. I just wanted to share that. I love that verse. Okay, so... Um, next the mood. So we know that we have to do pure devotional service to be happy. What should our mood be when we're doing this service? Because actually the mood is what makes something devotional service. The mood is what turns, the mood is what makes it devotional service instead of just any other activity. One person can be um, cooking food and thinking that I'm cooking this pizza because I really like pizza and I'm gonna eat pizza and pizza's the best. And then another person can be cooking, thinking I'm making this to offer to Krishna. And Krishna's very simple actually, he doesn't even need pizza. What does he say in the Bhagavad Gita? If somebody offers me a fruit, fruit, a flower or even water or even a leaf. Imagine if you walked up and gave someone a leaf and you're like, I found this. Actually, kids do that, right? They'll be walking and they, they find the coolest leaf and they're like, I gave you a leaf. You know, they bring it to their teacher and you think it's the sweetest thing. Why? Do you care so much about the leaf? No, it's the mood that they brought it to you and the intention. And that's devotional service. And Krishna wants us to understand that actually it doesn't matter what you're doing, what the results are how great it is, how small it is. If your heart is in the right place and if the attitude is there, then that's devotional service. 
So it's very simple. It's really actually really simple and it's completely internal. You don't need any external facility. Um, so there are some stories that I love that illustrate this point that everything um, is dependent on your mood. And one of them is, um, it's about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. It's kind of a mouthful, but this is an incarnation of Krishna, of God, who came about 500 years ago to, um, to preach, basically. Krishna came 5,000 years ago um, to attract people and to give people some inspiration to, to practice spiritual life. And, but what he didn't do is he didn't show people actually how to practice spiritual life. So he decided, okay, I'm gonna go again. I'm going to descend to the material world again, and I'm gonna actually show them how to do that. And the person who comes again to show us how is known as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, although he's the same Krishna. And so there's a story where Chaitanya Mahaprabhu sees a Brahmana, and a Brahmana is just a word, fancy word for a priest. And the Brahmana is, um, every single day he goes and he reads from Bhagavad Gita, or you think he's reading, he's holding Bhagavad Gita and he's reciting the verses. And by the way, this is Bhagavad Gita. It's kind of a big book. And he's mispronouncing a lot of the words and the other Brahmanas are making fun of him. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is a little curious, so he, he asks, you know, kind of, what are you doing? And the Brahmana says um, that my spiritual master gave me this order that I should read Bhagavad Gita. But I don't know how to read. Um, so I'm saying these verses the best I can. Um, but, and I sometimes don't even know what I'm saying. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, but if you, if you don't know what you're saying and you don't even know how to read, um, how is it that you're so moved? Because the Brahmana was very moved. He even had tears. And he responded, you know, I can't read, but I'm just looking at the picture of Krishna and Arjuna on the front. And Krishna looks so beautiful. And also he took this inferior position as a, the chariot driver of Arjuna. And um, so he's, he's serving his devotee. And I think that that's so sweet and it's moving me. And, um, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, you're actually an authority on the Bhagavad Gita. Even though you can't read it, you've understood the essence of Bhagavad Gita. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu really loved the mood of that devotee. That they, first of all, were trying to fulfill what seemed like an impossible order from their spiritual master. But they had that, um, the, that determination that he told me this, so I have to do it. And then second of all, he wasn't disturbed by the people laughing at him or all the external things, but he was actually really attracted by Krishna, which is what God wants. And so that's one example of how, um, that's an example that's illustrated in our scriptures of how important the mood and the attitude is of the devotee. So there's another story, and you will actually hear the story if you stick around in October and November. There's a, a month-long holiday. Every day is a holiday in Krishna consciousness. It's pretty amazing. But there's a one-month-long holiday called Kartik. And in Kartik, we dedicate that whole month to just one story about God. And it's a really beautiful story. All of the stories actually have a lot of layers to it. So I'm just going to talk about one aspect of this story. 
and it involves three characters, Nala Kubra and Mani Grika, and those are the two gentlemen in the front, and a person named Narda Muni, and he's the one holding the vena in the back, the instrument. So, um, so in the beginning, in the preface, to the pastime that we celebrate, the story happens where Narada Muni, who's a great sage, he's a saintly person, comes, and these two, Nalakubra and Manigri, they're basically having a party. They're like rocking out, they're with all these women, and they're like not completely dressed, and it's, it's pretty offensive because what happens is this sage comes, and he passes by the lake and he sees this nonsense going on. The women are very shy and they cover themselves. That, oh, there's such a saintly person, like let me show some respect and like cover up. But the two the boys are so intoxicated and kind of proud, they're like, oh or whatever. And so they don't even cover themselves and that's really offensive. Um, you need to know how to act in front of, you know, certain people. And so Narada Muni gave them a curse, but actually every curse, it's really fascinating, every curse in these stories is also a benediction. And the curse was that um, those two men had to stand as trees for so many years. And in this picture you see um, the end of the pastime where Lord Krishna in his baby form, he knocks down the trees. But anyways, this whole thing occurred, why? Because um, the mood wasn't proper, the mood wasn't there, like their attitude wasn't right. And so Krishna wanted to correct that in them. And so we can we can actually be a little reflective and see sometimes when we have difficulties in our life, what is my mood like? And what is my attitude? What is Krishna trying to adjust so that I can progress in spiritual life? Because chances are that's what he wants us to kind of fix. And then there I mean there's so many stories actually that um, I put a bunch in here. I don't know if we even need to talk about them or if we're going to have time for all of them, but there are a lot of stories where Krishna puts his devotee in a position where he can purify his mood. Like, um, there's one story about Govardhan Hill and one character named Lord Indra, who's a powerful demigod, and one service to him is disrupted, and so he sends a whole flood, basically, to the town of Vrindavan because they're not doing their worship to him. We're not meant really to worship demigods, we're meant to worship Krishna, who's the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And so, um, but Indra gets really angry. And so then what, what happens is that Krishna, he picks up the hill, Govardhan Hill, and although Indra had sent all of this torrential rainfall, Krishna holds it with his pinky of his left hand like an umbrella to protect all of the inhabitants of Vrindavan. And so it's kind of shameful because Indra thinks he's this big powerful guy and Krishna's showing him like, you thought I was just a kid, but here I am holding this huge mountain. And, um, and Krishna does that to purify the mood of Indra because he was too proud. He couldn't understand who God was. So I think I'm actually gonna skip the next story because you kind of get the point, right? What's the point? The mood is what matters. The mood is what matters. <laughs> <laughs> this is not my best work. I'm usually really into PowerPoints because I'm a teacher, but um, I kind of threw it together. I wasn't going to do a PowerPoint, but I, there's so many nice pictures, so that's why. Um, okay, let's see. Um, Okay, so, the, 
there's a word, it's actually two words. It's spelled the same, but it's pronounced differently. Um, deliberate and deliberate. And deliberate, the verb, means what? To consider, discuss, reflect. So I was hearing this actually by Vaisheshika Prabhu that we should read, we actually, to advance in spiritual life, we have to read and hear a lot. So we should read um, the Bhagavad Gita, if you don't have one, you should get one. And we should read the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is the next kind of volume, like undergrad and graduate. We should read and then we should deliberate on the messages and reflect on them and what they mean. And then after deliberating, then we should be deliberate in what we're going to do. So I read, and this is what the Bhagavad Gita said. It said to offer Krishna a leaf, fruit, flower, water, with love, with a proper mood and an attitude. And then we should be really deliberate and okay, now I know what to do, so I'm going to do that really enthusiastically because I want to know Krishna. Because remember the story, back going back to the story of the man who's looking for his keys, we're going into the dark, right? And so there's a whole higher experience going on that we actually can't see. And we're not going to have access to that whole higher spiritual experience if we're too absorbed in the material world which it's really easy to be absorbed in the material world because everyone is absorbed in the material world, right? We very rarely get the association of somebody who's interested in what's beyond this. But by associating with saintly people who can see that higher happiness and, and experience that um, higher experience, and by an association doesn't just mean hanging out with them. I have a friend who sometimes is, there's a sannyasi in town and they're like, I'm going to go hang out with Maharaj. Um, this doesn't exactly mean just hanging out with them, but it means hearing and taking instruction from them. And so also reading is a form of association because we're reading the messages and trying to deliberate on them. And then once we get a glimpse of that higher experience, we should very deliberately practice what we read so that we can tap into that higher experience. So... Um, Okay, so this is really cool. So after Sadhu Sangha, I was telling you guys I had this whole epiphany. After Sadhu Sangha, I got the opportunity to get even more association in California with my spiritual master, His Holiness Giraj Swami. He was in one of the pictures I showed you. And Indrajuna Swami was also there. And I got to... what? So Indrajuna Swami, if you know him, he does these really elaborate pujas. He has... Um, and a puja is like a worship. And so he has an altar kind of like the beautiful altar that Nityananda Chandra and Krishnamangala have. Um, and he does this amazing worship, and I got the opportunity to put together the tray that had the fruit and the flowers and the milk and all of the paraphernalia for the worship. And so I was putting it together in the morning, and this is what the tray looked like, by the way. I took a picture, I thought it was pretty. And so um, you can see flowers on the left, right here. And then here there's a little garland with little teeny tiny flowers. And then in this bowl there's some sweets. And here's all the fruit. Here's another flower, Krishna really likes flowers. And then in this cup there's some milk. 
And over here, there's some Tulsi leaves. Tulsi is a sacred plant, and so we use Tulsi leaves in, in worship to Krishna. So here's another picture of the same tray. Um, and then I got to watch as Indra Swami did the worship. So I'm going to show like a 15-second clip oh, from the video. It's really far out. And what I'd like you guys to do is try to find, it's like Where's Waldo, try to find all of these items in the video. Okay? <laughs> Ready? This was, this was about a 30-minute worship, so this is like a really short, just glimpse.
collected from all over the world, and it's offered with so much love. I could never do that, but I got to make the tray, and I got to put together, and so when I saw the items that I assembled in the puja, I realized oh, I was the servant of the servant, and it was a cool experience for me, that that's the philosophy put into practice. So, so that was something that I took away from the, um, from the experience that Krishna is more pleased when we're the servant of the servant, and the service rendered is more powerful because it's rendered through someone who actually knows what they're doing. Um, oh my gosh. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, so I want to briefly talk. I wish it didn't have to be briefly, but it, people are getting a little antsy and it's time for prashadam. So I just want to talk about Bhakti Tirtha Swami because it's his disappearance day. Um, really powerful personality. If you ever get to read his books, my favorite one is The Spiritual Warrior 2. I brought it. You can take a look at it, but you can't keep it because it's mine. <laughs> Um, the Spiritual Warriors 2. You don't have to read the series in order. You probably should. I didn't. I was really attracted by this title, Transforming Lust into Love. Remember uh, Srila Prabhupada's motto, nothing for, nothing for me, everything for Krishna. So the way that Bhakti Tirtha uh, Swami describes lust is lust means for me and love means for Krishna. And so this book talks about how we can actually love Krishna and it's amazing. It's really incredible. And I'm really preoccupied with this idea of love because I think everybody needs it and everybody's looking for it and it's really rare to find real love. And so I was reading this book and one quote really struck me by Bhakti Jiva Swami and I always think about this. He said, love is not always pleasing to the senses. So it's kind of like that idea that we were talking about earlier about how love is unconditional and love can't be unconditional unless it's tested. That means sometimes love is not going to be pleasing to the senses. And it's a little like if a parent um, has a sick child and they want their child to get better, they have to give their kid, what? Medicine. Medicine, which is usually pretty bitter. And that's an expression of love for the child, although it's not pleasant. It's not a pleasant thing. Sometimes the kid thinks that the parent's trying to kill them. Why are you giving me this medicine? It's so gross. I can't, to this day, I can't take grape-flavored stuff because medicine traumatized me. But love, that's love. It's not always pleasing to the senses. And it's really fascinating to me to kind of think about all my different relationships in life and how you can express love to someone because it's gonna look different in every relationship. Sometimes love means speaking harsh words. Sometimes love means you can't see the person because it's not good for you or them. And sometimes love is really pleasant also. Um, and every quote I hear about love, I think of it in that context, like um, this one. To love pleasure takes little but to love truly takes a hero who can manage his own fear. So sometimes it's scary trying to love Krishna because we think, what is the future of my heart in Krishna consciousness? I have to give so much up. What's the future of my happiness? You know, what is it gonna look like if I advance on this path of spiritual life? I hear that it's hard and people have to sacrifice a lot. So to actually truly love, it takes a hero who can manage his own fear. I also really like this quote by Rumi. Your task is not to seek love, but merely to seek and remove all the barriers inside yourself that you have built against it. So what barriers have we built against love? 
maybe the barrier is that we are still really trying to be happy. And, you know, maybe it's something else. So that's some food for thought. Um, do you guys have any questions or reflections? Or... Yes, Anthony. Well, it seems like there's always darkness around. Like we always have some key is lost or something. Mm -hmm. So is there any like break from development? Is it always, I, well, my question is like, seems kind of intense to always be in the darkness. Like, mm -hmm. Do we find some comfort somewhere within spiritual life where it's just like, okay, to like push? Yeah. Okay, so if I understand your question properly, you're saying that the process is so intense that it feels like we're always kind of struggling and there's not so much relief. Yeah. So I have two thoughts that come to mind. Tell me if I'm on the right track to answering your question. There are places in the world called hot springs where um, the water comes out of a source in the earth, right? We all know what a hot spring is. When you're right there and you touch the water, it feels very warm. You can feel the temperature. But somebody who who's downstream a few miles touches the same water and it feels very cold. How Your experience is the same water, but your experience is different depending on where you are. The closer you are to the source, the warmer the water is. So it's a little bit like that in spiritual life. The closer we are to Krishna, the happier, I hesitate to use this word happiness because I just said you shouldn't try to be happy. But that's also another part to it, that if you're trying to be happy, um, you, you will feel morose because happiness is so elusive. But if you try to just serve Krishna, it's a huge relief actually. We're so tired, aren't we, of trying to be happy? Have you ever thought, what if I just stopped trying to be happy? What if I went to the temple instead of expecting it to be this amazing, glorious, sparkly thing, just went to the temple to serve and then see what happens? And then another thought I had is that, you know, there are a lot of tests. In life, as soon as you pass the test, you're free from it. It's no longer a test. I mean, the test is still there, but it's not a test anymore. It's just steady performances. Like when we're in kindergarten, it's so hard to write our letters. We're just trying to write letters. And then it's not like you ever stop writing letters. You have to use letters in everything you do, but it's not hard anymore. So as soon as you figure out, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this situation or this test, then it's, it's a lot easier after that. But, but I feel your pain. I mean, we're in the material world. We're spiritual. We're like fish out of water. So it's very uncomfortable. You know? I was going to add to that. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, it seems like darkness, but there's prasadam and there's kirtan. There you go. What else do you need? The thing is, the material world, it says in the first canto of Srimad Bhagavatam that there's no happiness to be found in the material world. And it's a very big place. But the good news is, the spiritual world is not a geographic location that's very far away. The spiritual world, it can be right here. It's a matter of our mood and our consciousness. We can create the spiritual world if we have the proper mood and consciousness. So, so that's the optimistic side. <laughs> um, I saw a hand here and then one to you. Yes. I just have one thing. When you're speaking of um, being happy and, or being in the dark, or for me it was like, it's more about, it's, it was like a transcendence is the word that comes to mind because 
even in the darkest places, you're, at least for me right now, my outlook has changed in a way to where, like this morning, for example, so silly. I tend to get negative from time to time. <laughs> and so we were yeah. unwrapping all this furniture where I work at for um, an assisted living, and we got like 64 pieces. So we all came with our scissors, and we were like opening all this packaging. And I was like thinking to myself, they're doing this so stupid. They're doing this completely wrong. Like there's no organization, right? So I was getting like really negative and cool. So I just started chanting Hare Krishna like it to myself. And I was like, okay, I'm totally cool now. So it's, it's like a, it's a transcendence of like what my normal happiness was prior to coming here. Yeah, your consciousness changed. And so the whole situation changed. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Did you have something? Yeah, no, no. I was. She, she said it. <laughs> how you. This is how you create the, the proper mood and change your consciousness. Chanting Hare Krishna, your life will be sublime. We just have to remember it all the time. 